0: Hello, I'm Letitia, founder of personal coaching company, Looper, and this is the New Leaf podcast. New Leaf explores the practical, emotional, and sometimes messy side of getting back to work after having had a baby, but with a particular focus on pre and post baby identity. In each episode, I interview incredible ladies and sometimes the odd bloke to find out quite how they manage their returns together with their challenges and vulnerabilities in the age where the pressure, female perfection and having it all has never been higher, welcome to New Leaf. Follow the podcast on Instagram at at newleafpodcast to find out more and follow me at loopagrowth to find out about my prenatal and postnatal mama coaching program. So this episode has quite a different feel to the others that I've recorded so far. Charlene, my lovely guest, is in her early 40s with slightly older children. So I found the interview taking a multitude of different routes as we navigated an insanely broad spectrum of topics. She's well and truly out of what I like to refer to as the baby vortex and therefore simply has had a longer career to discuss and more experience navigating the world of childcare than those of us still firmly in that vortex. She demonstrated beautifully that the day does come where they're in school or full-time nursery and work suddenly has more space to re-enter our lives. And you can really hear this reflected in where our conversation went. There is such a vivacity in Charlene and you can tell that she is at a real peak of success and choice in her career, where children are more interwoven into her life rather than the other way around, where sometimes it can feel like you're struggling to interweave life full stop. I learned a lot from our conversation, but there were particular themes I wanted to raise, having reflected on them some more. Her role in co-founding the diversity partnership is obviously a huge passion for her, and we inevitably raised the topic of maternal discrimination for the black community as being quite literally a frightening starting place of racism in British society. A few things really stuck out for me, particularly as a member of the white privileged community. Firstly, Charlene refers to her own disbelief at the statistic that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth or early motherhood than any other ethnicity, saying to herself, surely this is a US statistic when she first read it. I think those in this white community have all been guilty at one point or another of categorising the Black Lives Matter movement as an American movement in their minds, or thinking of anti-black racism as an American problem. I believe this is partly because to imagine it happening in their own country isn't pleasant or is uncomfortable for the white community, God forbid. But also, deep down, they know that, really, it is an inconvenient truth. Facts are facts, and the statistics that Charlene so eloquently quotes do not come out of thin air. They are British statistics, they are obviously unacceptable statistics, and every statistic is a human being and a tiny baby. We as a society cannot accept this as an impossible problem to be resolved. We are all sharing this space together and each journey begins with a single step. So we all together need to keep having these so-called uncomfortable conversations with each other. I was painfully aware that I didn't want to treat Charlene as some monolith or mouthpiece for the black community as a whole by making the entire episode about this, despite there obviously being so, so much to say. Charlene has thousands of other stories that I wanted to share and I didn't want to reduce her experience or her personality by dwarfing her incredible career and stories around motherhood, as this is her episode about her life. But at the same time, I was also aware that this issue needs more amplification from all of us until it isn't an issue anymore. I really hope I struck the right balance. If you have thoughts on this, please feel free to share them with me. All in all I found Charlene a real role model to me in a number of ways. Her confidence in her experience of later motherhood was stark and having spent a long portion of my own limited experience of motherhood so far feeling unconfident this was really amazing to me. She just owns her choices unapologetically and to be frank I found it uplifting Reassuring and eye opening to see that someone as fun, as interesting, and beautiful as her can also have an insanely successful career with two beautiful babies and clearly just be living her best life despite a terrifying attack and a mental breakdown, which she so bravely shares. Her positive energy quite literally shines out of her, as you will hear. So, without further ado, enjoy, and I can't wait to hear what you think. So my next guest is a brand and marketing guru. She held extremely senior roles at both BT and Amazon, being head of brand marketing for Amazon in the EU before becoming head of live sports marketing at the Premier League and then striking out to set up the Diversity Partnership, a consultancy helping to build truly diverse and inclusive organisations where everyone has an equal chance of success. They have global clients, including Spotify, Lululemon, and a range of non-profit, tech, and advertising organisations. She's a mum of two, and I could not be more excited to have her on to hear all of her experiences. Welcome, Charlene Charity.
1: Hi, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me on today.
0: You're very welcome. So I'll just describe how we know each other, or rather, don't know each other. And you're the second guest I've had this with, where. It was a shameless plug by me on LinkedIn and Charlene ended up commenting and just saying I'd really like to be involved and then then we sort of went from there really, didn't it?
1: Absolutely, yeah, the rest was history.
0: Okay, so where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you?
1: So I'm currently at home in my um, living room. It's a bit of a a sad time for, uh, for me and my family at the moment because we're actually moving home on Friday, so it's currently Tuesday, so we've just a few more days left in our wonderful home. Um, We've been here for about six years now, so a really nice comfy front room with a lovely rug and the most um, beautiful sort of like big wide open window looking out onto our really sort of, you know, quaint and cute little North London street.
0: Oh, that's gorgeous. And you told me just before the call, you're not moving too far away, thank God. No, thank goodness. So we're
1: moving. So I'm currently living in Stroud Green in North London. So I'm just moving um, a mile or two down the road to um, good old Alley Pally. Which, um which is an absolutely beautiful part of London super green really high up amazing views I'm actually moving for um my oldest son will soon be ready for senior school or secondary school as we call it nowadays so um so yeah moving for secondary schools.
0: Oh gosh this is a whole world away from my current experience so I'm just pretending that it's not happening. <laughs> so tell me then about your immediate family unit so you mentioned your son
1: Yes absolutely so I have a son called miles who is nine. He's a really smart kid, to be honest. And I often look at him and think, I don't really know where he's where he gets it from. He's a real thinker, really empathetic, very kind, but a, he's still got a bit of a cool edge to him, bless him. So yeah, and he's the he's the force behind our move. We were sat around the dinner table, and my husband and I, you know, we're mindful of the fact that our current home is a bit of a Bermuda Triangle when it comes to senior schools. And you know, we're chatting to the kids, and we're like, well, you know, we're thinking about moving to Crouch End. It's really cool. They're on a great you know, bars and restaurants and some cool cafes and some great parks and the school's pretty good. And Miles, literally at that moment, put his knife and fork down on the table, stood up and gave us a five minute monologue as to how important his education was. And that, you know, if we really want him to be the best that he can be, then he needs to go to the best school. And out of all the schools, the best one for him with a massive, really well-equipped science and mathematical department was in um, Ali Pali. So that night, my husband and I just sort of looked at each other and said, you know, we really do need to do what's best for him. And he was right. It's the best school for him. It's just in an area that we're not really that familiar with. And and it's a bit further out. So, yeah, that's Miles. We also have a six-year-old daughter called Rosa, who is just a force, you know, she's a she's a true character. She's sort of everything that Miles isn't and it's just absolutely hilarious. Uh, the other night I was putting her to, to bed and um quite matter of factly she just looked at me and said, uh, Mummy. I was like, yeah. She's like, did you know that if you go to bed with an itchy bump, you'll wake up with a stinky finger? And that <laughs> just sums up. That just sums up Rosa. She's just an absolutely hilarious, doesn't hold back, really into kind of like the more more disgusting things in life, you know, dissecting frogs and things like that, a really strange but forceful child who's absolutely hilarious.
0: That's hysterical. Are all six-year-olds like this? I don't don't know.
1: I I don't know. I I don't know. Her, Her friends, she doesn't have a massive friendship group because she's really quite confident and comfortable on her own. But um, I think that she is attracted to pretty strong girls. So yeah, I think maybe that friendship group, you know, the friends that she does have sort of like perpetuates that. And then I have my husband, I have an amazing husband, Pete, who is currently working upstairs in our loft room. And he is a partner at a digital sport consultancy. So we're quite a sports focused and orientated
0: family. Any sports in particular?
1: There's a lot of controversy at the moment in our house around uh, football so my son and i are big arsenal fans obviously living in north london and when he was first born we lived in arsenal literally on a road called gillespie road that gets closed on match days and overlooks the old stadium so obviously he had to be an arsenal fan but unfortunately for us rosa and my husband pete are both chelsea fans quite big chelsea fans and as rosa gets older I think that she just likes to antagonize Miles and I because Chelsea are always doing amazingly well and Arsenal
0: aren't. My husband will be happy. He's a huge Chelsea fan, so I think he'll be on, he'll be on <laughs> that side of the fence oh, somehow. Oh, dear. Is. So you've talked about your immediate family unit, but what did you do pre-baby? So talk me through your career to date.
1: To be honest, pre-baby wasn't really that much different for me obviously I had more time on my hands but um I started out my career in the advertising industry so worked for a number of digital and bigger advertising agencies in the UK before moving to New York on a bit of a wing and a prayer where I basically worked illegally for about four, four or five months and then <laughs> moved on. I think that everyone does right it's really hard to get a visa so um hopefully the US government won't be uh, won't be on me
0: I was gonna say watch out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly it's-
1: so I worked for a PR and marketing agency over in New York, as well as a British musician who was kind enough to let me stay in his recording studio and work for him a day a week. And then I moved to Australia when I formally got with my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband. And we spent two years in Australia. And again, I worked for ad agencies over over there. moving back to London, where I uh, worked at BT for um, eight years, I was really fortunate and had a wonderful career there, working my way up from digital marketing manager through to head of customer marketing across many of their products, including BT TV and BT Sport, where I led the BT Sport launch to our existing customer base, so around 9 million customers at the time. And then after that, moved over to Amazon Prime Video, where I was for nearly four years, And as you mentioned in that very generous intro, um, working across some amazing projects, including a big brand piece of activity for Europe, and then leading the Premier League launch before I left. So my career pre-baby, so I had my children whilst I was at BT. Both at BT. Absolutely. So married and two babies at BT, and it was the perfect organization to have children. I had two amazing female bosses who fully supported me. And, you know, it, it didn't, if anything, I think that having children sort of helped. That sounds a strange thing to say, but I felt as though both times when I came back after having children, I was given opportunity, nothing was taken away from me. After my son, I came back, I had the most amazing boss, who is, is now a stay at home mum, and um, I think is maybe considering getting back into marketing. But um, there was an amazing boss to me, and she supported me, and she then went off on a, her mat leave. And I stepped up into an acting role. And When she chose not to come back, I was promoted formally into that role. So that was Miles. And then two and a bit years later, I went on mat leave with Rosa. And I was actually promoted whilst I was on mat leave. So came back. Not bad. I again had an amazing female boss, um, Shalini Galani, who is still at BT in a very senior position there. I came back into a much bigger role. So I left... I think, looking after BT TV and BT Sport and then came back and had two additional teams to to lead. And it was tough, you know, and it was really tough, but it was a great opportunity. And I think in the two years post having Rosa and while staying at BT, I really felt as though I was just given a lot of opportunity, really supported. And my career and experience went from strength to strength.
0: That's so refreshing to hear, and I'm sure that lots of women or people listening or that's not the soundtrack that people are hearing a lot at the moment. I mean, usually it's, oh, and then, you know, they told me my job didn't exist anymore. And there's a whole movement called mm. Pregnant Then Screwed yes. that, <laughs> that, that looks at this phenomenon because it is sadly so prevalent. So that's really amazing and refreshingly positive to hear. And you said that you had two brilliant female bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it about having those female bosses that you think helped?
1: Quite interesting actually, because both of those female bosses at the time that I went on maternity leave didn't have children, which I found quite interesting. However, I think as an organization and as a marketing department, there are still, and they were at the time I was there, a lot of women in there that had children of various ages. And, you know, I used to to laugh because when I first got there at five o'clock, I'd say, oh, there's a mum dash. And then within a few years, I was part of the <laughs> mum dash, you know, and also dad, to be perfectly honest. You know, as time changed, more men were dashing out the door at five o'clock. I felt for me personally, it was an organization that did support that. And again, it's like role models, right? You see people like you succeeding and you think you can succeed. And I think that was, you know, for me personally, that helped. And I, you know, there were instances and examples where they weren't great as an organisation. But for me personally, from a a mat leave and from a child, child childcare responsibility, I found that they were really, really supportive.
0: I couldn't agree more with seeing people like you succeeding, but I found it so demoralizing when I started my career to see so few females at the top and I remember this email being sent around our company saying um oh we've just promoted 25 partners into the business and four of them are women brilliant yeah. it was like huge shout out and I remember just thinking I cannot believe that we're celebrating this really and they were genuinely really proud of themselves and I just thought well there you go there's the problem Absolutely. And I
1: think that, you know, you summed it up, right, they were really proud of themselves, you know, them as individuals, they're obviously looking through life through their particular lens. And, and this is something that's sort of like prevalent all over. I think that I was lucky at BT as a head of department, a lot of head of departments, a lot of general managers were women, right? So that all felt very much achievable. However, when you do look at the rung above, and still now in that organisation, it's, it's very male dominant and male, male heavy. I think. Mm. Something that I'm very passionate and mindful of today, and obviously given it's Black History Month, is the ethnic and racial diversity in organisations and how that still hasn't and doesn't seem to be improving, shall we say? Uh, which is which is actually quite demoralising again and, and very frustrating and something that I'm really passionate about and which is why I do the job that I do now from a DNI perspective is that I just wants to be fair, you know. And a lot of the work that I do does look at let's look at the end to end recruitment process, let's look at the end to end development process. Let's speak to your employees from diverse and marginalised backgrounds and let's see how we can help them feel a sense of belonging. And you know, I've had the luxury of working at a few. Big corporates amazon obviously big, big corporate bt but i've also had the luxury of working on a lot of client business See, i do now i've worked with a lot of clients but but also my advertising days and i have had a lot of exposure to organizations where there just isn't that level of diversity they may be patting themselves on the back because they've got four women on the board but if, if you look if that honestly but if you look a bit broader than that that's kind of the only diversity that they that they have mm. which is really quite disappointing
0: It is so disappointing and I think it's all too easy for people to just kind of throw their hands up and say oh well I just hire the best person for the job and I believe in meritocracy and whoever's got the best grades or the best background or whatever and it's just such a myopic like short-sighted way of looking at what makes a good team and also just what makes a good employee and if you are dealing with an environment where you're not starting from the same point in the race for whatever reasons you know broader societal reasons and structural racism systemic racism etc how can we make it more even and what's the incentive and i think if you're at the top and you've lived this life of white male privilege i think uh, or just white privilege full stop i think equality can feel like discrimination because you feel like you know you're losing out and it's like well you know sometimes you do have to lose out <laughs> like, and actually are you even losing but it's this real defensiveness that I get. And again, from older people and particularly the blokes, just get really angry about it. And often I'm like, why are you angry?
1: Yeah, it's, um, do you know what, it's, it's really quite exhausting. <laughs> exhausting. I'm I probably not surprised. Shouldn't say, I probably shouldn't say that, should I? We see this quite a lot from a DNI perspective. And, you know, I see it. I think there's a generational challenge and piece at play where it does feel, you know, I'm 43 now. So a lot of kind of like my generation and older, Gen Xs and older, really do struggle to understand and appreciate that they are and have been socialized in a world of, of privilege, right? And a lot of, and that privilege is, is obviously white or quite often male dominated privilege. And I think that When often you sort of like hold a mirror up at them and you talk about white privilege, just those two terms in themselves can instantly get people's backups, right? Describing somebody as white by the color of their skin, they've never experienced being described or categorized by their skin tone, instantly feels really offensive and really harsh. As a woman of color, my business partner and co-founder Abby is black. So for us, you know, we're quite often we're very much used to being described by the colour of our scheme. But when you flip that back and you hold a mirror up at somebody that is white and of a slightly older generation where they've never experienced that, that instantly can get people's backs up. And then when you talk about privilege, you know, and a lot of people in privileged positions maybe haven't started out in privileged positions. You talk about privilege, you know, people say to us, well, I'm from a working class background. Yeah, but you're still in a position of privilege because imagine being from a working class background and black and Asian and other intersectional groups. And I think that those two terms joined together can often get people's backs up. And I think that's sometimes where that comes from. And then you know, we can talk about white fragility. I know there's a, the there's a book and there's been a lot of sort of like conversation in the media, but those two things are, are at play can quite often leave people that are not used to being described in a certain way or by, you know, identified by the color of their skin feeling really kind of like quite vulnerable and uncomfortable. And I think that quite often it's hard to just open yourselves up to that vulnerability and to acknowledge that probably in a position in life where you haven't had to experience a lot of the setbacks and the challenges that people of a different skin colour may have had. One of the stats that really, really upsets me being a mum is the fact that black women are five times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy or in childbirth than their white Counterparts. That for me, when I read that stat, I was absolutely heartbroken. I was like, questioned it, you know, really? Is this surely this is from the US? Surely this is an American stat. But no, you know, this is a a stat, I think it's from the ONS, and it's a stat that's that's very recent from the last couple of years, but it just sums up, I think, the structural racism that's in play in this day and age. So I was speaking to someone that I coach, and he was telling me about his mother, who was of mixed heritage, same as me, how his mother went into hospital to give birth to his brother, his younger brother, and how she experienced a level of prejudice. And they were challenging her and her interpretation of the pain that she was in So I sort of experienced both of those. I read about that stat and educated myself up on it. And then I was chatting to Sky that I coach and it really cemented itself in my mind. And emotionally, that's absolutely and revoltingly upsetting. And then I think Gabby and I do a lot of research for the training courses that we run and that we share with people and then again like statistic after statistic and it's absolutely exhausting children from black asian and minority ethnic families more likely to live in poverty for black children it's twice as likely to live in poverty obviously we all know this black men are more likely to be stopped and searched by the police 11 times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police than their white counterparts honestly it's stat upon stat upon stat outlining how structural racism is alive and breathing in the uk today and i think these are things that's helped spur me on and look to really focus on how do we take the bias and encourage people to recognize their bias and how do we try and challenge it
0: on a day-to-day basis it's a it's interesting that you picked up on that ons statistic because i was looking into this as well obviously prior to our recording and there's a there's an organization that i used a lot before i gave birth called aims which by the way if anybody is interested in look it up it's aims.org.uk and it's all around empowering women in their own birth and being more aware of using their voice to claim better outcomes for themselves and their babies and they had a super interesting article which is all about why are so many BAME women dying and like how can we tackle it as a collective? And they're a big voice of midwives as well. So I thought it was super interesting. And one thing that they were talking about was preeclampsia, which um, anybody who's listened to this podcast, they will know I'm really passionate about. And I, in my extremely privileged, frankly, white position, thought that I wouldn't suffer from because I knew that it was something that is super prevalent in the black community and also amongst people who are overweight, diabetic, et cetera, like the risk factor just increases. And I thought, well, I'm not in that category, so like, I'll be fine. And obviously I wasn't. And when I started looking up this more and I was like, why is that then that like more black women get preeclampsia? Like, why is that? And started doing more research came across this article and i thought they phrased it really well so like i've got it in front of me but they say that even if after numerous robust scientific studies there could be proof that there was some pregnancy related problem that certain ethnic groups were prone to this raises further questions firstly is that condition something which is caused or exacerbated by the way a person lives for example poor diet or stress but if so we then have to consider whether structural inequalities are playing a role in this particular ethnic group developing that condition. So what they're saying is that as a medical community and as a society, rather than just blanket saying, oh, well, that community is more prone to this, so, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And I just thought it's a really interesting way to start flipping this stuff and looking at it with a bit more intelligence rather than just putting it in the other category and not really doing anything about it i
1: think that structural inequalities often and mostly do play a role so if we look at covid another great example why are black asian and other minority ethnics obviously latino in the u.s why are these cohorts of people more likely to suffer from the impacts and the effects of it. And essentially, structural inequalities do clearly play a role with certain issues and challenges that people from ethnic and racial minority groups have within sort of like pregnancy, as well as things like covid diabetes, Uh, my brother's type 1 diabetic, contracted it quite late, very early 40s. And again, we do need to, I think, personally, we do need to look at the structural inequalities that are in place, you know, why are people more susceptible to suffer from these particular health challenges and illnesses? rather than just looking at it on a superficial level, take some time to sort of like understand the backgrounds of each individual group and address it from the bottom up rather than coming at it from the top down, which I think is how we currently do as a society and a a healthcare system as well.
0: It's sad and obviously a hugely difficult problem to tackle. But just because it's difficult, (laughs) again, it's like, oh, well, it's impossible. And you're trying to reverse years of this or years of that. And it's like, yeah, but you've got to start somewhere and can we start by just talking about it without people getting upset that yes. that would be a good start <laughs> that would be wouldn't it you
1: know it's yeah. a little bit like the black lives matter movement and the hours of conversations abby and i have around why it not all lives matter you know, and it comes back to this right this is why we need to focus right now on black lives matter it's just so complicated and there are so many sort of like intricacies to it all. But if we are looking at black lives and how black lives do, you know, do matter and let's let's put, let's look at that house that's on fire right now. I love that house on fire analogy where um, have you heard of that analogy?
0: Yeah, as in we care about all the houses, of course we do. But perhaps we should focus on the one that's on fire.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So let's focus on that house that's on fire right now. One of those things that if we can address the fire that's happening in the lives of most of the black community right now, it will in fact improve and impact on all other marginalized groups and then society as a whole. But right now, we just do need to focus on this. And I think that when we talk about things like COVID, when we talk about things like significant health care challenges, adult and childhood obesity, challenges within pregnancy and labor, see preeclampsia being one of them, all of these individual things disproportionately impact the black community And in turn, it's a strain on the NHS, right? So if we can fix it for the black community, I think that we genuinely will fix a lot of other things in society as well.
0: Yeah. And where better place to start than looking at the structural inequalities and how we bring people into the world with birth? I think the thing I found most disturbing was the fact that just from some of these articles I was reading they were saying that black women were less likely to be believed in terms of their pain and their pain threshold and were more likely to be questioned as to their background and their lifestyle factors and I just found that really just depressing.
1: It's so sad and if you think about childbirth you really are at your most vulnerable Mm. and to be in a position where you're in this situation, naked, you know, like all these oh, agony yeah. and to be in that position and then be challenged and then be questioned and then possibly be gaslighted, you know, so someone basically saying to you, are you sure? I don't think that's the case. That time of need, right? You're in absolute need. It like strips everything away and you're sort of in the most basic form as a human being, but then to be in that situation and challenged or to expect it or forced to go through a very painful or upsetting or uncomfortable or dangerous position or situation, quite often on your own, it's absolutely awful. But then you need to look at what happens next, like you know, from a healthcare um, and support perspective. Why are children from marginalised groups mm. in a position where they are more likely to suffer from health issues or child poverty challenges? It's just not fair and it's just disgusting, to be perfectly honest. And deeply, deeply upsetting. It really
0: is all of those things. And it just absolutely needs to change. So I'm, I'm glad that we're able to mm-hmm. voice some of this on this podcast. And I'm sure that we'll come back to it as we go through. But I want to just take a minute to go back to your journey for a second. Yes. So you said that you had Miles and Rosa when you were at BT. What were those transitions back like for you? And did you have any expectations of how it was going to be coming back?
1: That's a great question because it's really strange, isn't it, when you have your first baby, you leave for your first maternity leave and you expect everything to change. And when I came back, nothing had changed. Everything had changed. I had changed. You know, I'd gone from being this kind of like, you know, kind of bit of a hipster woman, rocking her bump in her lycra and her trainers to to coming back and still being the same person, but just having so much more responsibility. And from a work perspective, despite the fact that I ended up acting in my boss's role, it was as though time had kind of stood still. So yeah, in that respect, I kind of had these great expectations. And it was just, I was kind of worried about nothing. You know, I hadn't lost anything from a skill set perspective. I hadn't lost anything from a marketing capability perspective. If anything, I'd gained a lot being able to sort of juggle more and maybe care a little bit less about work, not in a bad way. I think before I left, I probably cared a bit too much. And with regards to the transitions back with Miles, I really wanted him to go to our local council-run nursery. It was just amazing. It was the best place for him. It was a real community. So in that respect, it was great. With regards to timings, I took nine months off with Miles purely because the nursery places came up in January and September. I think I started him and gradually, slowly introduced him into nursery, settled him in over a longer period of time. And this is going to sound incredibly selfish, but I actually took a month for myself. So he was in childcare, and I had a month just to relax, you know, just to prepare myself, just to get the house ready, get get my mental health into a good. Place and space just to meet friends for lunch and just try and get back and recalibrate, get back to being me again after basically being this sort of like feeding machine, um, a nappy changing machine for the past eight months or so.
0: And you said to get yourself into a better place mentally and mental health. Is that something that you suffered with? So I had a really difficult
1: birth with Miles and I just found it really hard found it really difficult just it was just I don't believe I suffered from postnatal depression but I just found it really bloody difficult Um, the winters were long the winters were really harsh and um I just felt really lonely a lot of the time you know my friends are off still partying and traveling and you know being the cool amazing women that they are and I just felt as though I was missing out on a lot of that and I was just absolutely blooming exhausted and I didn't want to be in a position when I went straight back to work, which I knew would be relatively full on, just not my A game. I suffered more so from a mental health perspective with Rosa than I did with Miles. Um, I think it's hard with two children. My husband was working away a lot at the time. So I think that when Rosa was a week, maybe two weeks old, he had to go away probably only for about three or four nights. But it was just, I just found it really hard with the two of them. And Rosa was just a very difficult baby. She just cried and cried and cried all the time. So, Rosa had acid reflux. We didn't find out until quite late. One night, I remember I picked Miles up from nursery and I was lucky to have him in part time, brought him home. And, and then the baby just, Rosa just kicked off. And at about eight o'clock, Miles came up to me and said, Mummy, um, um, see, babies have gone to bed and I haven't even had my dinner yet. And I'd been <sighs> so focused on Rosa and just trying to care for her, but I just completely forgotten about Miles. So I'd probably just shoved him in front of the TV at about, who knows, at half past three, four o'clock, and it's now you know half seven, eight, and he was coming to me and just basically saying, You haven't even fed me. I felt awful. And I went back to work back into a promotion, which was fine at first, but then I put myself under a lot of pressure. And I think I had a catalogue of issues that sort of ended up in me kind of breaking. Um, with Rosa, so obviously she was very difficult. Put her into nursery. I had some time to myself, which was great, and I really appreciated that. Went back to work. Went into a promotion, which was I was okay. But then I got attacked in my local park when I was with Rosa, and it was a physical attack. To be honest, you know, I it was really shocking and really upsetting. Even more so because I was with my baby in a pushchair. Basically, a man was dumping. So I lived quite close to Finsbury Park. And as I was pushing her through, I saw a man dumping a whole load of food into the children's play area. And I literally just said to him, I just said, excuse me, I don't think you should do that. That's a children's play area. And it attracts the rats. And he went for me, which was really quite frightening. Luckily, I was in my running gear, ran out of the park, screaming with this man behind me, kicking and punching. And as I ran out of the park, I think this is what upset me the most, I tripped. Rose's buggy on its side went into really busy traffic on this road called the Seven Sisters Road so I lost it luckily a bus driver stopped in time so she went into the road but didn't get run over and amazingly and like always in my life whenever I'm in a time of need like there's always an amazing band of women that come to help me women commuters ran towards me And sadly, and I've never had a chance to say thank you to the lady, but a teacher stepped in and this man that was attacking Rosa and I literally just punched her square on in the face. And then he ran off. I think that the culmination of having a difficult baby, going back to work, going back to a promotion, then the attack just broke me. BT were amazing. I had counselling, but I really needed a good, good few months to just sort myself out and and
0: just look after my mental health because I was just in a really really bad place that is terrifying you must have been beside yourself also and this is probably a really weird thing okay this is a very weird thing to say but when you're pushing a pram you don't feel the object of scary men no because you're pushing a pram is that weird to say no (laughs) No, it,
1: it really does feel like an object of security, right? Because you're in your little mummy bubble. And I remember somebody saying to me when I explained and I was very vocal about for me, I just had to get it out. I had to, i like somebody just say to me, Was there any preamble? And I was like, well, No, I was pushing a buggy. And and in all honesty, I think this man was just mentally ill and possibly not used to human interaction. And it just wasn't helpful, you know. I didn't I wasn't didn't raise my voice. I was to be I was very calm speaking to him, but clearly it just pushed a button and unfortunately I was at the receiving end but I I know what you mean I think that when you are pushing your buggy you do feel as though that you have this sort of chariot of safety right like your child's safe you're pushing it you're safe you're in your mummy bubble nothing can harm you so it really did um I think emotionally mentally it really did affect me but as I said I was very lucky in the fact that the therapy that I had And also I spoke to the friends of Finsbury Park and lots of other local organisations and police were patrolling the park and some lighting that was broken, even though it it wasn't that dark, was fixed. And I felt as though my sadness and frustration, I was able to convert it into some positive actions. And I think I got a lot from that and it's helped me really deal with it. I've come to peace with it and I visit it on a regular basis and I'm not sort of like afraid of going there.
0: It's super interesting that you said that it was a combination of the attack and second baby that caused this sort of mental break. It must have just brought so many emotions to the forefront. And with a couple of other guests, I talk about this actually, it's like when you have your second baby... You're juggling twice as much as what you were juggling before. You're doubly sleep deprived and you're splitting yourself even more ways while you try and care for your partner as well as these two extra little people. And it's, it's stressful. So then to deal with a huge trauma like that as well must have been awful. I'm not
1: going to lie to you. It was tough and very upsetting. And But I, I, I had to, the therapy that I had to sort of like get through it, but also the action that i took i felt as i was taking positive action to make the park safer to improve it in any way i could to share my story to highlight to people that maybe going through the park in the winter probably possibly wasn't the safest of things to do but in the fact that the council's came together and they improved the lighting in the park all these little things i felt as though i had made this positive change and in doing so i kind of felt okay about it and also because it's clear that that man was mentally ill, right? It's clear that he wasn't just a nasty person. I think all these little things have helped me come to, um, come to terms with it all.
0: Of course. And it, I mean, it doesn't make it any less scary at the time. And I'm so sorry that you went through that. So you had Rosa and then yeah. heading back to work for a second time. And I think you taking that month for yourself, I kind of feel like maybe that should just be mandatory for everyone.
1: <laughs> Why didn't I do that? <laughs> I actually think that my husband encouraged me to do it. So with Miles, he wasn't working away as much. I can't remember if he suggested it or I suggested it, but I know that he was really supportive of it. And I think it comes back to our our whole philosophy. And I always joke and say, oh, you know, Pete and I, were really selfish people, but we're not. Like, we obviously love our family and we'll do anything for our family, but we do believe in looking after ourselves first and foremostly. I think it's really important. There's that whole, again, another analogy... When you're on an aeroplane, in the safety video, they always say, you know, adults put your masks on before trying to secure a mask of, a, of your child, and that's something that we've tried to apply to our lives. Like we can't be great parents, we can't be supportive, can't be doing the best for our children when we're just trying to survive ourselves. For a lot of families, people don't have the luxury of finances. I think there are small things that you can do, like take a bubble bath, send your kids out on a play day, and just. Have a rest. We're moving on Friday, but a couple of weeks later, it's half term. And um, we were talking about the fact that both of the children are actually going to be in holiday camp. And on the Friday, we were originally going to spend it as a family, but the kids both want to be on the school camp on the Friday because there's a Halloween disco. So Pete and I were like, right, brilliant, we'll just go have a nice, boozy lunch. You know, and it's, it's things like that. Like we need to spend time with each other to keep our relationship alive, but we also need to spend time for ourselves to, to keep ourselves alive. There's nothing worse than being tired and snappy and not emotionally present for your children, I find. So if I do need to have a little lunchtime nap, if I can, or if I do need to ship the kids off to grandma's one weekend every other month, then I'll kind of do that. And and they just get used to it. They don't necessarily always like it, but I think that they do understand it. And I hope that moving forward, it it teaches them that
0: self-care is really important so much of what you say will resonate with people in that there's a culture of self-sacrifice where being a great mom is sacrificing your soul for the sake of your kids. Whilst I understand the principle and I understand where that's come from, women do that with no additional pressure required from anyone. Do you know what I mean? I don't think we need any extra pushing to give an awful lot for our kids. I mean, you give two years of your life anyway yeah. to be pregnant and have a newborn and nurture and raise them through that time and I think it's sort of sad that we're all for kind of talking about self-care but I think as mums we tend to not do it so it makes me want to ask you where did that kind of confidence to do that and and take that time for yourself come from?
1: I think that my parents growing up were really chilled out fun parents who brought up in a mixed race family my dad was white English my mum is black African my dad was 26 years older than my mum, so let see, but he'd had a family before, and my half-sisters are much older than me. I think they're actually even older than my mum. So I think that he was a very natural parent because he'd done it before, and he was also a granddad, but his children and grandchildren lived in South Africa. So I think that I obviously learned a lot through having such a mature and worldly parent. You know, my mum at the other end of the spectrum was very young. English wasn't her first language. She struggled, right, It's coming from Zimbabwe to a council estate in Essex. I think that she that obviously had its own set of challenges. I think for both of them, they were very chilled out, fun parents that did a lot for, for themselves. You know, I was shipped off to my Auntie Barbara's in Boston and Lincolnshire for a week every summer. And, and again, I got to an age where I didn't really like going, but I had to go. So I think that I probably saw a lot of self-care and investment from that perspective. And then it's also just a philosophy that Pete and I have in life. We had the luxury of living abroad and travelling and just doing what we wanted to do without any commitments. So when we had children, I think that we just wanted to retain a sense of self-identity, I guess. Our friendship group didn't have children until a lot older. So even though I was 34 and Pete was five years older, our friendship group, most of them didn't have children. And some of them still obviously don't have children. And I think that also encouraged us to, or forced us to keep it real because there's no other way we'd see them because they probably didn't want to spend that much time with a newborn screaming baby. I think it's a combination of those things.
0: Yeah, and that's so interesting, isn't it? If you're the first to have babies in a group of people, I think it does affect the way you parent in some ways, because Mm -hmm. you don't want to be left behind from your friends, or you feel extra pressure to kind of prove that maybe you haven't changed, and you're still the same person. And Of course, you are. Like, it's not an act. Like, of course, you are still the same person. It's just that sometimes you do want to talk about, I don't know, as you said, reflux or whatever, but you know that this is completely not interesting, which is absolutely fair enough. So, you were back at BT with Rosa. So, you survived, you made it through two maternity leave. So, what happened then? I think career wise at BT, I just got. As far as I wanted to
1: go in the organisation, I looked at my boss, who you know I really still respect and admire, and I just thought, you know what, I don't really want your job. Whereas in the past, I'd looked at my boss's or predecessor's jobs and thought, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. But I think at BC, I just got to a point where I was a bit like, I feel as though I need a new challenge. My children are now much more settled. They're slightly older. So, Miles would have been about five or six, which means that Rose would have been about two or three. And I am really passionate about entertainment and obviously working on BT Sport and, uh, and on BCTV. Amazon Prime Video cropped up. Netflix was booming. I just thought, oh, I just fancy a bit of that. So, someone that I'd previously worked alongside at BT had moved over to Amazon Prime Video. And we just had a, a chat. And before I knew it, I was halfway through my nine interview um, process. Nine interviews? Nine what was interviews. What that about? Well, it, the hilarious thing is I actually asked for the ninth one. But um, it's just the uh, recruitment process there at Amazon. There are two telephone interviews. And then you go in for a day of six interviews with your peers, line manager, and some other people. I was offered the role off the back of that. But I hadn't met the director or the most senior marketing person within the department. And I just genuinely wanted to meet them. Leaving an organization like BT, where I'd been for eight years, where I had a really clear career path, it was a very difficult decision for me. It was my home. It's where I'd grown up. I'd got married at BT. I'd had my babies at BT. So I really needed to make sure I was making the right decision, which is why I wanted to meet the most senior marketing person there, which I did. And, and then I left but it was heartbreaking. I still cringe at my last day at BT where I um, remember just sort of like crying my way out. And I'm not a big crier, but I literally held it together. But as I was going around to say my individual goodbyes to my team, but, but by that stage were about 18 people. But I just got to my TV and sport team and just broke down. I mean, you're spending like nine
0: hours a day with these people, if not more. Like it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah, it was, it was tough. So you moved on to Amazon whole new culture different people absolutely. different teams everything so what was that like it was tough and, and I'll be completely honest
1: with you I absolutely hated it for at least the first <laughs>
0: year and a half
1: it felt as though it was the worst decision I'd ever made it was a very toxic culture in that particular department at that point in time and the person I was reporting into was clearly being bullied by her um, superior so it was a really really tough time I think, for everybody involved and a very lonely time. You know, the the way that Amazon Communicate is very unique. There's a lot of isolation there. However, thankfully, and I'm 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 a really open and honest person, right? So it got to the point where I went to my line manager and just said, look, this isn't working for me. I don't think this is working for you either. I'm really thinking of leaving, but I wanted to be honest with you. And she was amazing. And within a few weeks, I had moved into the right role for me within the right team with a manager that was very supportive. So I think it's really important, and I've learned this, it's so important that you have those conversations at work. If I hadn't have done, I would have just ended up leaving, and I wouldn't have had the amazing experience that I've had to date um, with Amazon.
0: And that's so funny as well, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people just get so wound up that they end up just leaving without even bothering to have that conversation. And sometimes, like, you never know. They might really value you, want you to stay and offer you something more. I'm a big believer in that. If you don't ask, you don't get.
1: Absolutely. And it takes a bit of courage because there's an element of vulnerability, right, to go to somebody and say, like, I don't think I'm the person that you need in this role. I don't think I'm doing a good enough job. I knew why and I was able to communicate that. and. Testament to that particular manager at that time, they didn't want to lose me. My experience was very unique and it obviously came into its own over the following two odd years that I was there, but it was just really important that I'd had that discussion. I would absolutely recommend anybody that's in a position right now to just have open, honest conversations. What's the worst that can happen, really? I know it's difficult because it's obviously COVID times and roles aren't that, there's an abundance of roles at the moment. But if you're going to leave, I think it always makes sense to have that conversation before you go, before you walk out that door.
0: Definitely. So the most exciting bit of all of this really is how did the partnership all come into fruition? So whilst I was at Amazon,
1: I worked on a big brand campaign and then I worked on the Premier League. And halfway through the Premier League launch, I'd get wheeled into all the, not wheeled in, but I'd need to attend all these meetings and Particularly meetings with the top six Premier League clubs. And I remember being sat in one and looking around and thinking, oh, there's no one like me. I think there was an amazing lady that heads up the marketing for Liverpool Football Club on the call, but she wasn't in the room. The rest of, honestly, the rest of the people in the room were white men, middle aged. They're all great and lovely people and very kind and very hospitable and very professional. And I never felt as though I was looked down on in any way, shape, or form. And, and it started to kind of grate on me a little bit. And I needed to find a new advertising agency week. So that was happening. I'm like, what oh, is this really weird industry, you know. And I set up a lot of meetings. I'd go into a lot of these meetings. I've always worked in marketing, but there's always at least been a lot more women around. And then I went to see an agency, and I obviously won't share the name, who I felt really rude. And I'm coming to see you for, for help and potentially for partnership. And I just rocked up me. And they literally gave me about, 20 minutes of their time cut the meeting short they clearly like wheeled in some like the most senior people thinking oh wow amazon are coming and in walks kind of like little Charlene charity with her jeans and her curly hair and i could just see the like that utter like disappointment and disrespect on their faces and i was i was genuinely upset went back to my boss the following day and explained what had happened and how they'd kind of spoken to me and how they'd cut the meeting short and I think at that point, that experience really started to open my eyes to the lack of diversity and the, the complete void of inclusion in a lot of organisations. You know, it's always been there. My degree was actually in human sciences. My dissertation was on social exclusion. So I've always been interested in it. It's always been my passion. And I think a combination of all of these things in that very moment in time made me think I need to do something more. So I handed my notice in, and I will take some time out, see my family, because Amazon is a very intense place to work, and I just wasn't seeing the kids, and it made me miserable. So I thought I'd take the time out, see my children, move home, which I'm finally doing, and then come back into marketing. But I then thought, oh, I really wouldn't mind doing a bit of DNI consultancy. I picked up a couple of projects just on my own. But then the George Floyd murder happened, and the Black Lives Matter movement gained a lot of traction. And I met via LinkedIn, my amazing um, business partner and co-founder, Abby. We decided to set up the diversity partnership and it's going really well. And it's, it's exciting, but it's hard work. You know, my passion is diversity and inclusion, but my profession is marketing. So I'm in this interesting position now to build and to lead by example from a D&I perspective, but but the diversity partnership is something that will live on even if I'm not on the business full-time and I can absolutely do that in a non-exec director type position. So that Chadwick Boseman quote, I'm taking my time, but I'm not wasting my time. So that's my approach.
0: I love that. I think that's a great quote and very poignant that it's from Chadwick Boseman Mm. as well. Yeah.
1: It's so close to my heart and I absolutely love it. And you know, my husband thinks I'm crazy because it's like, you love it. It's going really well. Why do you want to go back? But in my mind, it isn't going back. It's all going forward. And, and, I, and I meet such amazing people all the time. And I have done, you know, you're one of them, let's issue, to be perfectly honest, um, as I'm on this journey. And each of them have taught me something different. And, you know, I work with an amazing uh, creative strategist who um, has a full-time role at Facebook, but we also work together for an organization called POC, People of Colour and the Creative Industries. He leads a massive division at POC, as well as having his role at Facebook. So I, I am meeting a lot of people that are making both things work. And as I said, I've spent 20 odd years in marketing. It's kind of what I do, right? It's part of my identity and I love the work that I do and I don't feel as though I want to sacrifice one thing for another like I want to do both of them
0: so if you want to make something work you can make it work well then people need to watch this space to see what Charlie <laughs> does next because yeah. I will be watching very closely so I know that Rose is six and Mars is nine but what are the main things that you've kind of noticed since exiting the baby vortex and moving more into the child vortex? So I know that a lot of people who are listening to this are still in that really, that yeah, the vortex of being a new mum at the beginning and all the stuff that comes with having babies and toddlers. So what advice would you want to give to career women who are in that situation right now? It's a really good question.
1: I found, for me personally, I found the baby vortex definitely the most difficult once they can start speaking, it starts to make things a lot easier. I would say give yourself a break first and foremost. It's really hard. And part of giving yourself a break may be getting the help that you need. So for me, when Miles was first born and I was on maternity leave, I saw a lot of my mum and she was just amazing. Like She was there straight after the birth and wouldn't leave his side. But when I went back to work, she went back home. It's only in Essex, but she went back home. I didn't have the support from her. and I didn't have... I thought I could do it all. all, I thought I could just do it all. I thought I could do it all by myself. Um, I saw these other women around me doing it all by themselves, it seemed. and I just thought I could do it. At one point, we got a cleaner, which was life-changing. If you don't have a cleaner and you have a baby, just get one um, if you can afford it. I think that that for me was a really big step. And then the other thing that we didn't do, which I wish I had have done, was was, was just ask my mum to come up and support me some more. When Rosa was born, we were able to come to an agreement where my mum, I basically paid her in the same way that I paid the nursery So she was able to um, give up to two days a week um, work and come and work for me two days a week. And that, for me, was the biggest benefit, I think, because you just don't get a moment to yourself when you have a a baby. Like, they're into everything and all over everything. Like, don't stress yourself out with Instagram. Like, I just think that following (laughs) and looking. But honestly, and I didn't do it, right? So Facebook was the big social media channel when I had the children. And then I didn't really get onto Instagram until a little bit later. But I never followed any of these yummy mummies because I, I just was not prepared to put myself through it. There's nothing worse than comparing yourself to somebody else and somebody else's life, which to be honest, doesn't even exist. Right? Yes, I do not so look true. that great all day. Don't do like I just say, don't do it to yourself. Don't even entertain it. Like follow, just don't follow any mums in a similar position to you that only present a really positive image because it's not true and it's you're not being fair to yourself.
0: I think that's such good advice because it's such a like feeding in the middle of the night thing to scroll through Instagram and it's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I think at the time, as you said, right at the beginning of this conversation, you're in such a vulnerable position in those early days and you're just extra Mm. spongy, like you're extra, you just absorb more crap. You just do. And I felt like I'd just become this funny shell where I just felt like I couldn't get anything right and that everybody else was doing it better than me. And I felt like I needed a load of help and nobody else did. And it's, yeah, it's it's a funny time, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is. It really, it really is. Honestly, take the help if anybody's offering, even if people aren't offering, but you think there may be a way that you can make it work, you know, it's a big decision saying to my mum who for me to come to her and say like, mum, do you mind looking after my two children for two or three days a week, but she'd stay over get up in the night and she'd help me in the morning. And it honestly changed my life. So if there is a way that you can take the help, take it. And if there is a way that you can afford the help, I would say take it as, um, as well.
0: If you can't take it, make it.
1: Try. We'll just try, try and make it because I do understand that financially a lot of people are in difficult um, situations right now.
0: Try and make it work. And remember, it's only a short term investment. There's an app actually that I'm recommending. This is not in any way endorsed or sponsored by them, by the way. I'm just genuinely recommending it called bubble.co.uk. And I was in London with, I didn't have any support in London, didn't have family in London. Well, I did, but my brother had had a baby four weeks before me. So it was sort of not really on the menu, but I didn't have much support. And on the occasion where I really, really did need some time, um, I found some amazing, really, really affordable help on Bubble. It's an app that you can download. People are checked can check all their credentials and stuff. And I found it phenomenally helpful. So I would say that, you know, there's a actually really, really affordable, reliable, good help that you can get just to give you an evening off. And it's just like so rejuvenating, isn't it? Even just one day, it feels like a holiday.
1: Oh, it's amazing. Just being able to drink a, whole, a cup of tea whilst it's still warm or, <laughs> or having lunch, you know, whilst it's still hot is, is, is an absolute luxury. I also found that with my NCT friends, sometimes we would, give, we would do a bit of a child swap. So even if it was just for a couple of hours to get to sleep, you can often make it work. That's a good I mean, idea. It's not exactly the most invigorating afternoon for you if you're looking after both of them, but it's, it's definitely a swap worth doing. And then we'd also do babysitting. We'd also babysit for each other. So obviously, if there are two of you in the evening, like a, you know, two partners in, in the evening, we'd let an, an NCT couple go out. And then I would go over to my friend's house whilst my husband stayed here with the kids and I just take my laptop and do some work but it's these these little moments in time where, where people can you know you can be in a relationship again or you can you know have a sleep and as you said like rejuvenate yourself these small moments in time can really make a big difference.
0: I'm conscious of time and I'm aware that you've got all sorts of busy and important things to be getting back to so what do you feel is the best thing that motherhood has brought to your life?
1: I generally feel as though my outlook to life has changed in a positive way where I'm just so grateful for everything that I have
0: and every moment
1: that I have with the children and every little thing that they do or say, I really start to cherish. I feel as though prior to motherhood, I would always kind of like wish the days away or wish the time away or be like really keen to get onto the next thing. But motherhood has really slowed that down. So I think that's kind of just a general thing. From a career perspective, motherhood has really cemented everything that I felt and and believed beforehand. So, my quest for fairness, for equality, has really been magnified by having children. And I think it's because I've come more into contact with people that I never would have done in the past. And and I'll be perfectly honest with you when I moved into the area, there's a lovely little school at the end of my road. That it's Offset Outstanding, which is wonderful, and kids look like clean and pretty and really well behaved. But we didn't get in, and I was absolutely gutted. And I actually got into my fifth school choice, and I, was, I wasn't particularly happy. I thought the kids were naughty and it was a bit unruly, it was really run down. However, that has been the biggest, I guess, gift and really opened my eyes to the inequality in, in our neighbourhoods, right? You know, and, and I see that every day. And I think that for me is the biggest thing that being a parent has taught me. Like no one deserves to be in some of the bad situations that they find themselves in. But as a community, we can all rise together. And I'm so grateful for having the interaction and building the friendships with a real wide range of my kids' friends. And that's really benefited my life motherhood has really cemented my thoughts values and belief systems and it's really opened up my social circle and makes me better at the dni work that i do for me having children has just made me so grateful for the life that i have and i feel so lucky and so blessed every single day and i don't ever remember feeling like that
0: prior to having children Okay, so last but not least, um, then, do you have a particular view on a top priority that society should be focusing on when providing for new mums, and particularly in the kind of return to work journey? For me,
1: it's around trying to level the playing field, and how do we ensure that a new parent returning to work is given the same opportunities and is also treated with kindness because they will need it to a degree. It's hard; it's so hard returning to work. You know, I learned a lot from the, the. positive way that i was treated at bt i was given opportunities i was given time i was given a lot of support i was given counseling when i had when i ran into emotional difficulty and i think that in doing so i was able to really thrive and i think that every person returning to work needs that support
0: this is like a whole other podcast in itself the the discrimination that mums particularly single mums and people from different socioeconomic backgrounds feel in terms of perhaps the types of jobs that they're in etc where they don't have employers who are gonna give you counseling or talk about phased return to work or it's just like well you turn up or you don't and if you can't do it then okay or you can do part-time and yeah we'll just reduce you know there's no compressed hours for you it's if you want to work three days then we'll we'll pay you for three days (laughs) I think levelling the playing field just encapsulates this really beautifully. And particularly what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, it just feels poignant and relevant to end on this note. So tell our listeners about how they can access diversity partnership stuff before you go. For listeners, I'd say if you're interested in learning any more about the diversity partnership, we're
1: literally the diversitypartnership.org and that's our web address. And we have a a very vocal Twitter channel and we're also on um, LinkedIn as well. So again, it's just the diversity partnership across all of those channels.
0: Amazing. Okay. Well, Charlene, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and I just can't wait to see what you do next. No problem. Thank you. Well, everyone, that's the end. Thank you so, so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to New Leaf on wherever you get your podcast from so that you don't miss out on my next episode. Feel free to message me directly on Instagram at, at New Leaf Podcast if you like, and on at Upa Growth if you are feeling inspired and want to find out about my personalised pre and postnatal mum coaching programmes. Have a lovely, lovely day, and if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye everybody!